Okay. We're live, Alexander. We're waiting for Robert to join us, but we thought we'd just go live right now and, and wait for Robert to, to jump on. And uh, we were we were just talking about Zaluzhny uh, because there's a couple of questions in mm -hmm. the uh, in the chat from GEC812 and from uh, Raisis about Zaluzhny and uh, Budanov and Alensky. Uh, if Zaluzhny pushed against the counteroffensive, maybe he was deleted by those wanting to go ahead. Anyone who doesn't agree with them is a traitor. And Raisis says the collective Wests are banging their heads against Alensky's infectious piano for the total overhyped counteroffensive, which was a complete failure. <laughs> well, I, I, let us be careful. It, we, we're yeah. still on, it's still ongoing, so you know it, it's not going well at all. In fact, it's going horribly. But um, you know, let's not. Well, let, they, you know. they they said they're going to put a pause to it, Alexander. That's the oh, latest that I've heard. Oh, really? that, that's the rumor going around. I don't no, know if really? that's true. Okay. I mean, well, <laughs> as a matter of fact, just just before you before you reply, the Kiev Independent actually put out a tweet and said that. Uh, um, the Alensky regime and NATO, they're thinking about putting a pause to it. Well, if, if, if it pauses, it's going to be called off. <laughs> I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, a pause at this point means cancellation. I mean, they might try again sometime in a few months, you know, mm -hmm. new, new offensive in the autumn with F-16s this time. But anyway, a pause we'll, at the moment. We'll yeah. we're, we're talking about Robert, the great Robert Barnes. Uh, we are talking about the Kiev Independence mm. uh, tweet that they put up today, which said that they're considering pausing the, uh, the offensive Ukraine-NATO. Uh, I mean, they might as well. It's not like it's anything they've done so far has worked very well. Uh, I mean, I assume, I mean, the goal I thought was to have a big victory by july at least you know be in uh i'm gonna you know butcher the name metro met not mario paul but me me Melito paul. Melito oh paul. lord oh man wait why, why can't they make these names simpler the uh but uh just be, uh, because you know by the july nato conference uh the uh, i like on polymarket for those people that are interested you know there's uh there's betting markets now and all mm. kinds of things of course uh, and on Polymarket, they have a bet up on whether or not Ukraine will cut off the Crimean land bridge by August. And whoever initially was placing bets was predicting like 70% chance that the land bridge would, in fact, be cut off by August. And I was like, mm, I, that's a, I, I would take the opposite side of that line. The, uh, you know, the, I've been, Following some of these other interesting, uh, it's interesting the different independent voices that have popped up in this whole thing on the on the military strategic side of the line, uh, in terms of the social media space. You know, all of your big names, uh, big brands on YouTube. You know, basically have taken the NATO or Western line, uh, but there was some that have been independent. Uh, you know, you, you guys talked to Defense Politics Asia, uh, who's been one of those independent voices. Uh, another one, I mean, some were independent voices already, people like Scott Ritter, uh, McGregor, etc. Yeah. Uh, but another one was this YouTube channel called History Legends. Um, and it was yeah. fast, like he'd been breaking down this stuff about interpreting Bakhmut as a potential way to just sucker in a lot of Ukrainian troops so that Russia could build up its defenses in anticipation of a counteroffensive in the summer, uh, the, you know, the multiple lines of defense. 
and it's just been breaking down what a total disaster uh, the Ukrainian offensives have been to date in the sense that they're gaining like, you know, they they lose two tanks for a farm. I mean, that's not a good trade-off. That's not a sustainable trade-off. So I could imagine if they're going to try to re-script this as this is a total disaster, supposedly several of the top military leaders are maybe not even in Ukraine currently, whatever mm-hmm. the, that I- issue is. Uh, if I guess, if you were looking at this option, either option A, uh, we just get humiliated for the next month. And so in the NATO conference forums in July, everybody knows it's DOA. Or uh, the we claim, oh, we're just going to operationally pause to, you know, come up with a, a, you know, to make sure we have everything, our ducks in a row, et cetera, to kind of delay the inevitable defeat. Um, maybe that's a, a a strategy because the whole war is being fought for the domestic political consumption of American political and Western political elites. I mean, it's the weirdest war maybe ever in that sense. I mean, it's a war that's intended for reality TV. Um, and it's about, you know, how's the narrative going to work for next week's episode? Um, rather than how do you actually win the conflict? How do you actually achieve meaningful mm-hmm. objectives? Mm-hmm. None of which has ever seemed to be on the table for Ukraine. And again, you know, literally a, an actor president. Absolutely. Can I just say just a fun fact, all of these complicated names in you know this region, Southern Ukraine, Novorossiya, whichever you prefer, they're Greek. They're actually Greek names. Melitopol mm-hmm. means the town of honey, the city of honey. Mm-hmm. And uh, the funny thing about this is that none of them has actually a historic Greek connection. When uh, when Catherine the Great and uh, her prime minister, chief general and lover and possible husband, Prince Potemkin, he of the famous Potemkin villages, um, who's actually a brilliant general, when they conquered this region, their idea was that it was going to be a stepping stone to uh, advance to Constantinople and recreate the Byzantine Empire with a Romanov prince as its head. And in fact, he was one of Catherine the Great's grandsons, and he was actually given the name Constantine in preparation for this. And all these towns were sort of given Greek names in commemoration of this. So... Um, Odessa is named after the Greek hero Odysseus. Mariupol, Melitopol, any town which has Pol in it is Greek. Tiraspol, all of these places. Sevastopol, Sevastos, Sevasti is the empress, so it's the city of the empress. The empress being, of course, Catherine the Great. And they did decide to give one name, one actual ancient Greek name to a city which was her son, and they did know that there were Greek cities in this part of the world in the ancient times, but they got the place completely wrong. So they thought that her son was where the modern city of her son is, except actually her son, the real her son, the ancient Greek her son, is located in Crimea. So they got, they got their geography about all of that completely wrong. So anyway, that's, that's the story about this. This is why all these places have these strange names, these Greek, well, not strange to us, but Greek names. We as Greeks have no problems with them. And the, the city of honey is named in that way because apparently there's lots of bees and the honey that's made there is apparently very fine. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Let's uh, 
let's just jump into it, uh, guys. We have a lot of stuff to cover. Very quickly, the great Robert Barnes, where can people find you? Oh, uh, all of our uh, content is up uh, at vivabarneslaw.locals.com. And that is in the description box down below. I have a link to that amazing Locals channel, and I will also have it as a pinned comment as well. Welcome to everybody that is watching us on Rockfin Odyssey, Rumble, YouTube, Telegram, and the Duran.locals.com. And a big shout out, a big hello, and a big thank you to our moderators, Valies, Peter, GEC812, Reckless Abandon. I think I saw William Justice in the chat as well, and Zarael, and all of our moderators. Thank you very, very much for everything that you do. Alexander, Robert, let's let's talk about what is going on in this crazy world that we live in. I mm. pass it over to you, gentlemen. Well, we, we are in a, we are in a crazy world, and we're in an extraordinary world, and perhaps in some ways a very exciting world. Because um, in our last program, the program which we did with Robert Barnes, we were discussing uh, an absolutely ludicrous case that has been brought in New York against a former president of the United States. We all agreed that it was an extraordinary abuse of prosec prosecutorial power, but um, Robert pointed out its extremely serious constitutional implications, the fact that, in effect, legal warfare has been declared against a president, a former president of the United States, that has not ever happened in American history before. And he pointed out how dangerous that was and the constitutional and political implications of this and how this could open the door. And now we have a much more serious prosecution brought again against the same former president, obviously Donald Trump, this time over the documents that he was supposed to have. I, ha I have my own views about this, which um, I, I think this is a utterly misconceived prosecution for political and also i suspect constitutional reasons perhaps since you know before i asked uh, robert about this i'm going to put my cards on the table i i've been reading some theories legal theories about this i go with the unitary theory i think that he was the president of the united states he was the head of the executive in fact the executive as far as i can see emanates from him. He is the only, in fact, um, person who heads the executive, uh, created by the Constitution and elected by the people. So as far as I'm concerned, these were documents that were met, created for him. He's entitled to declassify him, to declassify them and take them with him. So I think on that basis already, I think this is a very dangerous and difficult prosecution constitutionally speaking. I don't mean that it will fail, by the way. I think that's another thing entirely. I think there's a great risks that it might succeed for all kinds of legal reasons, which Robert can explore more fully. But I do tend to think that the unitary idea is a good one. I'll be interested to see what Robert says. But again, the fact is there's also the problem that this is a selective prosecution because we have one person who holds, who has classified documents or had documents, which is probably declassified. I mean, I'm assuming if he just removed them, that was in effect, he decided to declassify them and 
take them away with them. But anyway, lots of people across Washington apparently have classified documents. Joe Biden did, perhaps does. Hillary Clinton does. Hillary Clinton used a server, her own um, private server, to send classified material. Nobody's been prosecuted before. Perhaps that was bad. Perhaps that was wise. These other people were not the president of the United States. Donald Trump is, it looks to me, to be frank, as if this is a case brought by his political opponents in order to drive him out of the election, or at least to compromise him in a way before the election. That is my view, but I've expressed certain theories about this. I'd be interested to see what Robert has to say. And I'm sorry to go straight in with the topic of the day, but I should tell you, Robert, the British media is full of this story. And interestingly, even in the British media, there are doubts about it. You find some places where there's concern, there's worry that this is going too far, that this was not a wisely judged thing, that it might have implications for the future. I've read places, articles like this in the more conservative-leaning newspapers, even places like the Daily Telegraph, where they don't like Donald Trump. But there's concerns that this was a mistake and an ill-judged prosecution. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, briefly to the Super Chat question as to who would make the better peace candidate, because this actually relates to the topic, believe it or not, uh, between Trump, uh, Robert Kennedy, Cornell West, Tulsi Gabbard, all of them would be very good peace candidates and that you can make arguments for any of those four. Uh, uh, Gabbard, of course, is currently not running, not likely to run. Uh, West is talking about running, but his chances are very remote. Uh, Robert Kennedy uh, is, the, is, uh, is, has a long shot bid because of the Democratic Party's institutional corruption. So all of them uh, would make sensible, political realist, uh, peace-oriented, war-opposed presidents. Uh, the only one that is considered to have a real chance to win. Now, they may be wrong about Robert Kennedy. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But the popular perception in Washington is that the only peace candidate, multipolar uh, candidate, neutrality candidate, if you were to put it that way, uh, in terms of the Super Chat question, uh, is Trump. Uh, Trump is the only one that scares the current deep state. It's not that Robert Kennedy doesn't. It's that they don't think Robert Kennedy can overcome the Democratic Party's institutional corruption, due in part to the way superdelegates work in their nomination process, due to the fact that Biden's currently, you know, getting rid of Iowa and New Hampshire delegates from even counting. I mean, that you know, the Biden has complete carte blanche control of the Democratic Party, and they've shown an overt open willingness in back-to-back elections uh, that were was scared of Bernie Sanders, and it's not like Bernie's known for his real deviant foreign policy uh, or being an anti deep state guy. He never really has been. He's been a sporadic uh, but not consistent anti war voice, and yet they went to great lengths to make sure he did not get the nomination. And so uh, the deep state or the military industrial complex, national security establishment, whatever you choose to call it, mostly fears Trump. And that uh, that is how I see the indictment. Uh, the indictment is election interference. It's an attempt to derail Trump's comeback effort in 2024. 
and to you know keep the war machine rolling, whether it's in Ukraine or wherever else they want to want to take it, and to keep the national surveillance state afoot and uh, in in position of power and growth, and certain globalist agendas, which you see America as a tool, uh, the American people, American resources, American wealth, and American power as a tool for their own uh, uh, ulterior objectives. And so uh, Trump has been the big threat to that. He wasn't supposed to win in 2016. They never really took him seriously, even after he had the nomination. They thought it was a lock that he would lose. They were uh, they launched you know the the spy campaign against him as soon as he meaningfully gained currency in in one New Hampshire in February. That's when they, if you really look at the real timeline. Uh, you look at the Durham report and other information, it's really February, as Tucker Carlson pointed out on Tucker on Twitter, that you know it was Trump's deviant announcement on Russia uh, and American foreign policy and our lies to get us into Iraq that opened up the first effort of the deep state to derail his campaign. Uh, then that escalated into Russia gate. Uh, then that escalated into Ukraine gate. Uh, then that escalated into COVID policy reaction and COVID itself, arguably. Then that escalated into the election issues, and they haven't stopped. Even and then escalated into January sixth, where there's anomalies they still haven't explained. You know, fake bombs being planted in certain places. You know, there's a there's a certain kind of correlation between some of the staged events uh, surrounding January sixth and the Maidan coup. It's of note, by the way, I always get a kick out of how nuts the your neocon, neoliberal war establishment, war horror type personalities go about January 6th, when uh, that exactly is what made on coup was, right? You know, all the Ukrainians taking over government buildings. Wasn't that supposed to be heroic? Wasn't that supposed to be democratic and revolutionary? Uh, and then they plant their own people in to assassinate people, as has been detailed in a range of of of, uh, of evidence that in studies that have been done by a range of, of political scientists and others uh, that are independent. Uh, so the Trump is seen as the the such a threat that the moment he said he was going to run again, they escalated the New York uh, lawfare against him, escalated the federal lawfare against him, and the question was always would they cross that Rubicon? They partially crossed it with the New York case, but the New York case was kind of seen as so laughably absurd even in uh, with people like bill barr who has been a deep state hatchet man his whole career whole life i mean his dad was the dalton school uh, headmaster very elite school uh a certain you know current secretary of state went there uh you know a range of people went through the dalton school of course, so the last thing his dad did before he uh, stepped down as headmaster and decided to write science fiction books that glorified uh, underage sexual assault, a little bit of an odd thing to write as a headmaster, was, of course, to recommend one Jeffrey Epstein to be a math teacher at Dalton School. Uh, you know, Barr was the only son of a wealthy family in Upper West Side. You know, he, he's one of those nerds that played the tuba. You know, he's one of those kind of people. Uh, but mommy liked him a lot. You know, it's like with Joe Biden always. Uh, we'll talk about Joe Biden being a, a mini LBJ uh, here in a second. But it rem similar, Bill Barr reminds me of, of aspects of that kind of, uh, uh, you know, mommy uh, said I'm smart personality. Goes on to get his pedigree, political pedigree, through the Bush family. Uh, was working for Poppy Bush when Poppy Bush 
was at the CIA uh, burying all the evidence from the church committee about CIA misconduct and malfeasance. Bush brings him into the Justice Department when he becomes vice president. It's Bill Barr that helps with Robert Mueller uh, do, you know, preside over everything during the Bush, uh, Poppy Bush administration that helped bury everything connected to Noriega, which involved all the drug running, all the money laundering, uh, that included arms running, that included all kinds of illicit activity. We used Noriega as our guy going all the way back to the 70s, in fact. But the, uh, so that's who Bill Barr is. He suckered his way into the Trump administration by promising to end the Mueller investigation, which had multiple levels of irony because he and Mueller go way back. But Mueller was at the end of his rope. They had no proof that investigation had served its purpose to cover up the criminality of the deep state and the initial spying on Trump. And then used it as a perfect uh, controlled opposition kind of position. So it's under bar that Jeffrey Epstein dies. Uh, eternal truth number one, Jeffrey Epstein did not kill himself. The uh, uh, As I like to say. Uh, but it's also under Bill Barr that uh, the election issues happen and he claims there's no problems. I mean, Bill Barr's failure to use the Justice Department to make sure we had elections people could have confidence in in 2020 is part of the problem in 2020. And then it's Bill Barr who buries, as we now know, all the Biden corruption that he had evidence of since 2017. And it's not a coincidence, the centerpiece of that Biden family corruption, though it extends geographically and time-wise far beyond Ukraine, the core of it currently is all about Ukraine. Um, and so I, I, I think as you look at those combined issues, Trump was the main obstacle all along. And Trump is still seen as the main obstacle. So they've decided to cross the Rubicon with this prosecution in the state of New York case. Barr acknowledged it was so weak that he, he was basically calling for, by predicting, he was calling for a federal indictment of, of Trump by the deep state allies. And that's who Jack Smith is. You know, it's not a coincidence. The guy's over at the international criminal court frequently, right? It's not, you know, the, the kind of people that are at the international criminal court are not your great human rights advocates of the world, uh, given how incredibly selective they are at the international criminal court with who gets prosecuted for so-called international crimes and who does not. So, Jack Smith has, and he's also a political hitman who's mostly known for if he's assigned a case, he brings an indictment, regardless of whether the case is any good. Jack Smith was involved in the John Edwards prosecution. That was the Democratic uh, sort of left populist Senate candidate who got taken out over a sex scandal and they criminally prosecuted it as a campaign finance violation. There was many people at the time uh, who said that it was a completely bogus legal theory that was being pursued. Ultimately, the jury wouldn't convict, and so the case uh, never reached uh, full appellate review. But Smith lost that case, and Smith's people did. Same with he went after a Virginia governor on an honest services theory of RICO fraud that was unanimously rejected by the United States Supreme Court as bogus all along. So he's not a, a known as an intellectual bright light. He's not known as a legal heavyweight. He's not known as a great trial lawyer. He's known as a deep state affiliated hitman who will bring an indictment if he's assigned a case, whether he wins or loses. Clearly, the deep state believes that Trump is still the greatest threat, and they believe that weaponizing the Justice Department is their means to prevent him from uh, reoccupying the White House in 2025. 
The other aspect of this is they're trying to establish a legal precedent, which is that we now have a national security state, deep state, whatever you want to call it, that has legal power over our secrets. And this has been the long objection of Julian Assange, mm. that the corruption of our governments around the world, the most horrific things our governments around the world do depend on one thing above all else, secrets. And that, that exposing those secrets became part of his kind of life mission. Mm -hmm. But his bigger political philosophical point was this is the greatest danger. That if you want to take out deep states around the world, take out secrets. Remove secrets. Remove their capacity to keep secrets. Remove their ability to sustain secrets. Do that, and the core of their power collapses. So what are they doing here? They're saying here that the elected president of the United States cannot share the deep state secrets with anyone without their permission, or if he does, if he shares it with the people, if he shares it with the public, if he shares it with an investigative journalist, then he goes to prison. That's the precedent they want to set here. That's how insane the precedent is from a constitutional perspective, because there is no constitutional place for the deep state. It really isn't. Uh, its only existence is pursuant to the president creating it for the president's purposes. The executive power under Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution is exclusively vested in the president of the United States. Congress can't change that. The courts can't change that. They try, but constitutionally they can't change that. And so the president, class, things are kept a secret for the benefit of the president. So the idea that the president could be forced to keep a secret is kind of insane because the whole point is solely for him. He's the, he and he's the in this case the elected embodiment of the people. So by saying that the deep state, the administrative state, the national security state that the that some agency can have power over the president flips the constitutional order and creates a legal administrative bureaucratic state who can use the power of secrets to elevate themselves over the elected branches of the people, the elected representatives of the people. And in that process, completely contort, distort, and destroy the entire constitutional framework. And that's the scarier part of the Trump case, is that it wants to establish a deep state precedent. That's why I've said people can think whatever they want about Donald Trump. This case is democracy yeah. versus Donald Trump. Uh, democracy versus the deep state, not the U.S. versus Donald Trump, fundamentally. So this is, does constitutional democracy survive? Or does the deep state now have legal precedent that they can even lock up the president for sharing the deep state secrets with the American people? I have to say, uh, um, Robert, once again, you have clarified things brilliantly. So what this is all about, in effect, is saying that the president is under the control of the officials. He doesn't control the officials. They control him. And in fact, it reminds me of Alexander Vindman coming to the um, House uh, uh, subcommittee, you know, in that first impeachment and complaining angrily that what the president, Donald Trump, had done was contrary to the policies of the interagency, which is in effect the deep state. So we've seen that they're now taking, getting another huge step forward. They're saying that from this point onwards, the president doesn't control things. We do. 
and he must do what we say. And if he doesn't, we'll arrest him, charge him, put him in prison. And um, well, the Constitution, as I always say, those first words in the Constitution, we the people, that doesn't apply anymore because it's not the people through their elective president who run the executive any longer. It is, in fact, the officials, the people who the president supposedly appoints. But if they can arrest him, can he really appoint them any longer? Because or can he can he can he sack them? I mean, can he do anything with them? In effect, they control him. Now, I don't know whether you're aware, Robert, that there is a way back in the early 20th century, there was a theory uh, associated with an American thinker, an intellectual called Michels, who talked about the iron law of oligarchy. And he said that democracy is unsustainable, impossible. It cannot exist. In fact, he was so convinced about that that he eventually emigrated to fascist Italy, where the system was more conducive to his views. And he said it cannot exist because eventually an oligarchy must take control. And it seems to me that we've never been in that kind of situation in American history before, that we are now perilously close to this. This is a very, very scary situation. And I think I would endorse completely what you said before at the start, that if we're talking about who is the most viable and convincing president uh, or candidate to win the presidency, who can, in fact, take us off this war escalator. It has to be Donald Trump. I mean, Robert Kennedy has an, a mountain to climb. Donald Trump has already been president. He's already the most famous and best-known Republican. He has millions of supporters. He's far ahead in the game of where um, Robert Kennedy is. And I'm going to say this, if Donald Trump is tried, arrested, well, he's already been arrested, tried, convicted, and sent to prison as a result of all of this, well, I think you could forget about people like Robert Kennedy and anyone else, because to be straightforward about this, even if they achieve the presidency, which becomes extremely unlikely, they will not be in control anymore. It's as simple, it is as stark and as simple as that. And can I just say that it was already predicted, it's been talked about, this is from mainstream media in Britain, this is as mainstream as it gets, it's Daily Telegraph, this is written on the 2nd of June, it's the title to an article in the Daily Telegraph, and it says the deep state is gearing up to fight a second Trump presidency Trump will face resistance, a reinforced resistance in 2024, worse than in 2016. It is exactly what you said. They're pulling out all the stops to prevent him uh, winning, to make sure that if he does win, he won't be able to function. And in the process, they're creating an incredibly dangerous precedent, which tells you where the real threat to democracy in the United States comes from. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, 
briefly to the super chat questions about Operation Gladio. Uh, I have a hush hush on that up at vivabarneslaw.com. The uh, but no question, operate. I mean, part of what we're dealing with in Ukraine is you could argue a vestige of Operation Gladio, and at least in part. Uh, in terms of people that are activated around the Maidan coup and their ties to the Banderites and the Banderite ties to Operation Gladio as well. Uh, <coughs> and that caused all kinds of problems all over Europe, Operation Gladio, that's mostly been suppressed by the Western uh, historians and press. But so the, uh, but yeah, uh, uh, the no question that that's how the system sees it. The, the deep state sees Trump as their great threat. They, they see uh, as almost an existential threat. And so they're willing to resort to things they never have resorted to before in the open, overt weaponization of every level of law enforcement to get there. And in the past, when they've done this, they've done this to outsider dissident candidates, right? Eugene V. Debs during World War One, who was locked up under the Espionage Act. Uh, you know, Victor Berger, the congressman from Milwaukee, who was subject to the Espionage Act. People like that, Alien and Sedition Acts, going all the way back to the founding of the country. But what they've never done before is weaponized it against a former president, weaponize it against the leading opponent of the incumbent president. Um, and that that's an entirely different route. And then to do it at the Justice Department federal level, not just some rogue local state prosecutor like the New York case. And apparently, you know, Barr is still so nervous and you can follow Barr and listen to his his analysis is crap in terms of the law. He's making stuff up as he goes along. But listen to what he predicts. Because what he's predicting is actually what he's asking his deep state allies to do. And he'd been screaming after the New York case for them to prosecute Trump on the classified documents case. Now he and others are nervous about the progress of that case because Jack Smith uh, agreed that the case had to be brought in Florida. So the Southern District of Florida is a uh, neutral jury as, as a jury pool. The judge is Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, who's already has expressed skepticism about this case when she had the search warrant stage of the case. So that has your Andrew Weissman and your other, uh, you know, uh, deep state allies on the outside now, you know, whining about how they won't be able to get a railroaded jury verdict because the and it's the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is much more uh, balanced party wise than the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is. So I think for all those reasons, Barr now wants them to bring another federal prosecution against Trump on January 6th grounds, but bring it in the District of Columbia with a D.C. judicial pool, D.C. jury pool, where they already know from the prior January 6th cases that that they'll just lynch, that they're all lynching juries uh, because it's it's literally the deep state getting to judge itself, judge itself. It's the administrative state. They're all federal government employees. They're all professional managerial class people. They're 95 percent Democrat. It's the biggest Trump-hating jurisdiction in the world. There's more people in D.C. that hate Trump than 1950s Birmingham hated Martin Luther King. I mean, it's just uh, amongst the, the white elites there. So don't be surprised. In fact, right now, odds are in the same poly market elsewhere, two-thirds chance or better that they bring an indictment by August in D.C. so that he would be facing another indictment. Now, they they... The sensible thing would for none of these indictments to have been brought politically, but they really believe that the indictments would cause, they thought two things. Uh, DeSantis, I believe, was was pitched running for office, running for president on the, on the pretext that uh, Trump would be taken out by indictments. 
And so they had to part, deliver some indictments in order to keep DeSantis in the race and to deliver to DeSantis, who they think is the main ticket to take out Trump in the Republican primary process. Now, there, I think there are other offers. I think DeSantis got a $10 million guarantee from Rupert Murdoch through Harper Collins as a book deal. And, and for a guy who's never made any money to have financial security for he and his family, that's how the system works here in the States. Book deals are the most common form of bribery and money laundering in America for politicians. There's lots of other means. Joe Biden can really teach you the real ways to do it. Old Joe's been doing it for four decades. And that man's got some serious skill. Um, and, 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 and that's part of also what's going on here, too, is Biden's own corruption. But the uh, uh, and it's not coincidental that it's connected to Ukraine in, in all of this. But so you're probably going to see these continued efforts to come after him. But the political reaction, if they had, if the, the you know, this is where the deep states disconnected from uh, American political reality has been to rally around Trump, to buttress Trump, to where Trump now has a historically insurmountable lead in the Republican primary. No candidate who has had consistent over 50% support uh, in the in a presidential primary has lost. Uh, Trump has hit that number ever since they indicted him federally. So, and in some cases, he's up to 60% support. Because the problem is two things for the establishment, two things. The Republican primary voter base has massively shifted. Uh, part of that is generational. A lot of the old school conservatives rooted in the old Cold War ideology, your managerial, professional, upper middle classes, you're kind of, a, you think of your old Tories if you're in the UK that are from the, you know, the, the respectable classes. Always throws me off because your public schools are our private schools, and our private schools are your public schools. But the, uh, but you know, the the American prep school type, uh, old school conservative. A lot of them have just died off. The silent greatest generation just is passing, fading generationally. And there's a new replacement of millennials and and Zoomers, and the Republican types amongst them are a very different group. They they're more working class, uh, and they're very populist oriented. And then a lot of the old populist base of the Democratic Party, this is a problem that Robert Kennedy will face in the, in the nomination process, has left the Democratic Party and joined the Republican Party. And a lot of this has happened just in the last 10 years. So the, the party they think exists, like the Romney uh, the, uh, 2012 primary electorate, you had as many college-educated type voters as you had. You had more, you had more up, you had as many middle upper middle class voters as you had working class voters in the Republican primary. Now you have between twice, depending on what state it is, twice and three times as many working class voters as middle and upper middle class voters in your primaries. You know, it'd be like if the I don't guess I guess they don't quite do primaries in the same way there in the UK, but it would be like shifting from the nice suburbs of London to the old parts of Manchester. Uh, that's the effective flip that the Republican Party has undergone in a very tight time frame. And so the populist base was going to stick with Trump. And historically, there haven't been many examples of this at a lower level in America either. But a, a few have. They indicted Governor Edwin Edwards many times in Louisiana. He came from the old Huey Long tradition, old school uh, left populist. 
Big Jim Folsom, great governor of, of uh, Alabama, was subject to multiple impeachment attempts and uh, criminal investigations. Huey Long, Louisiana, subject to uh, multiple impeachment and indictment attempts. But a couple of famous ones, Jimmy Curley, mayor of Boston, indicted while he was uh, running for mayor. My hometown had one of the most famous ones. James E. Bookie Turner, Chattanooga, Tennessee, indicted while right before the runoff, two weeks before the runoff, they federally indicted him. And he was running for fire and police commissioner of the, of the city. Well, if they'd studied their history, all those guys survived. And in fact, their base rallied to them. Huey Long uh, won. Big Jim Folsom won. Jimmy Curley won the election. Uh, Bookie Turner got the biggest turnout in the history of the city, bigger than even turned out in presidential elections. And uh, all unprecedented. And it's not uncom- you know, different than Israel with Bibi. You know, I mean, they, you know, they've criminally gone after Bibi. Hasn't derailed his career. He's back in power once again. Uh, they went, I think it was Chirac. Wasn't it Chirac that was under indictment forever in France? And yeah. as long as he stayed prime minister, he didn't have to face trial. It, there isn't a lot of history of criminal cases effectively taking out popular or populist or other right-leaning uh, or even left-leaning politicians of a high profile. But they don't realize that because their greatest fear is to kind of be exposed and be indicted. So they assume that would be Trump's greatest fear and Trump's supporters' greatest fear. And just as impeachment backfired and Russiagate backfired, uh, the and January 6th to some degree has backfired on them, uh, this has backfired badly. The, the, and the, the other thing that's happening is Trump is being re-perceived by younger voters. So Trump has been gaining amongst younger voters in ways that DeSantis and all these other people can't. And it's being kind of overlooked by a lot of the polling and political establishment, even though it's right there in their data. And this will do it even more so. Richard Barris started polling not long after the federal indictment and saw this in his own data, which is Trump used to be 2016, 2017 Trump. He's the old, you know, amongst younger voters. He's the old oligarchic, you know, super rich, mean New Yorker, like almost a comic book villain. You know, that's who he was. He, he was. he represented power, white man power, and white man wealth, and old money in a certain way. You know, like some sort of comic book villain. Now, like they interview people on the street, interview young black men on the street, young Mexican-American men on the street, others, younger people in general, you see in the public opinion polls. Now Trump is the guy that the man is trying to take out. You know, now, now Trump is homie the clown. And so all of a sudden, uh, for the in living color fans that may still be out there, the uh, basically Trump is the guy that they identify with, that they now relate to. He's not some distant oppositional villainous character they can't relate to. He's now just like them. Ah, oh, the man wants to take him out. The man wants to frame him. The man wants to put him in prison for 14 years. So all of a sudden you're seeing Trump, especially post indictment. But the same thing happened in some other places too in prior elections of campaigns of people who got targeted like this, the communities that have a history of being wrongfully harassed by the legal system tend to rally to someone who's under attack in the legal system. And so that's disproportionately uh, African-American and Latino voters in the United States of a younger generation, especially. So Trump is surging amongst the very group they needed to keep him from gaining votes with because 
They're weaponizing the system in such an open, overt way. They've made the billionaire Trump look like the little guy underdog. And that's why they're in deep trouble politically. And I'll get into why that the trial that uh, getting the, the case itself is unlikely to have a verdict before Election Day. Mm. But that's why right now, if Election Day is verdict day, the deep state is going to lose badly because they overreached and overstepped. That there's kind of analogy analogies between the Ukrainian military operation and deep state attacks on Trump. They keep overreaching. They keep overstepping and it keeps backfiring. Oh, absolutely. Can I just say you are absolutely correct in what you said about the fact that people from uh, uh, lower, lower socioeconomic groups, the people who get harassed, are always the first people to understand when uh, legal processes are weaponized. Um, my, my aunt, who can I just say was, a, as you know, a well-known politician in Greece, she was always telling me this. And of course, in Greece, we had... We have still a very powerful Greek uh, a deep state, which does this a great deal. And of course, it never worked. And um, she always said this, that one of the problems of the people who do these things, um, they, they don't, because they're not politicians themselves, because they're not functioning in democratic systems, because they don't go out and meet voters. They don't go into uh, working class areas meet people there talk with them really understand them they just don't understand firstly that these people are a lot shrewder than they realize that you know that they can actually sense this they can they have a feel for when somebody's being picked on in this man in this man i can always hear her telling me this actually now <laughs> and the result is that um as you absolutely rightly say, they identify with that person and they close ranks behind him. By the way, you see this in Britain. It's not been widely talked about, but coming when we come back to Julian Assange, whom I'm very glad you mentioned, by the way, earlier. But in terms of who has been supporting Julian Assange in Britain, overwhelmingly the support for him has come from this, uh, a lower socioeconomic demographics. Precisely the people you say who have been the ones who get harassed by the legal system in all kinds of ways. They have an, they have an immediate understanding of, you know, the fact that he's been picked on in this way. And if you're talking about Belmarsh, the prison he's in, it's the same. The prisoners there know that he is being picked on. They may know that they themselves are guilty, but they know that he is not and the result is that apparently he's had a lot of support from the prisoners in the prison. And again, if you um, have experience of this, if you know about this kind of thing, you will know that that is not unusual at all. So I just wanted to endorse everything you've just said there and say, you know, that this has been point. I can, as I said, I can almost see at this moment in time conversations I've had with my aunt explaining this very fact to me. People who operate outside democratic structures, they always make this mistake. They always underestimate the shrewdness of people and their speed in catching on to these things. And it's not surprising at all 
that in America they're they're responding in that way. Now, I, I really would like to know a little bit more about how this goes. And you said that you didn't think it would be concluded before the election and all of that, because um, I, I, you know, I don't want to take up the entire program on this topic. But as I said, here in Britain, it's been much talked about with a lot of unease here as well. Um, but perhaps you can provide us with some explanation about the um, poly, uh, the, 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 the the legalities of this. And can I just say, if Bill Barr really wants to launch another prosecution in D.C. based on January 6th and is basically pressing the Justice Department to do that, to do that it just shows how uneasy and nervous they must be about this prosecution in Florida and how much they must realise that that prosecution isn't going to succeed. Because any case based on January 6th, in my opinion, based on the facts, as I understand them, um, it makes no sense at all. But can you give us some sense of the, you know, the, the way in which this will play out and what will happen over the next um, 18 months or so? I mean, and I think part of it is that uh, the deep state really believes their own internal rhetoric. In other words, they do see tre uh, Trump as a treasonous, seditious uh, individual uh, be because uh, engaged in espionage because to them, they, the deep state, should be running things, and he yeah. interfered with that. And interfering yeah. with that was in, in the same way they saw John President John Kennedy as a, as a traitor. Because to them, they should be running things that their definition of the world is the American definition of the world, even though if it has no, nothing really to do with benefiting the American people. Or as Robert Kennedy explained on Joe Rogan, every single one of these policies has been a disaster for the population that was targeted and for the American people, both. Uh, but so the way the process works, a typical federal case by itself in America that has any degree of complexity usually takes at least 18 months from indictment to trial. And now there is a speedy trial, right, that the public has constitutionally and the defendant has and under the statute, but that can be waived and it's supposed to be waived when there's complex issues implicated. And those can be complex issues of fact or of law. Here, there's an extraordinary number of complex issues. They won't even produce the discovery until the judge signs off on a protective order that's good. That tries to prohibit Trump from looking at his own documents. It's insane. You know, it's meant for a totally different kind of case. But they're going to fight that before they even start any meaningful legal disputes. And here they have motions to dismiss on grounds the indictment violates Article 2 of the Constitution, vesting executive power in the president exclusively uh, without limit or restraint by Congress. Violation of uh, the First Amendment because of two forms of selective prosecution. One form of selective prosecution is the in the uh, any administration indicting their lead opponent. It's never been never happened before in American history. Is that a form of selective prosecution in violation of the First Amendment right of speech, uh, assembly, expression and press and petitioning the government? And then the other selective prosecution, just dis disparate treatment that similarly situated people with different politics were treated differently. And, and there, Poppy Bush, when he came in in 1989, he went in and deleted tens of thousands of documents permanently of Ronald Reagan. No consequence by the courts. Uh, 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 Bill Clinton 
famously, as you know, Clinton now, uh, Trump now calls it the sock case, which is classic Trump, because he's always coming up with you know various images that make things seem insane. But the uh, uh, but it, I mean, it was in his sock drawer. Clinton uh, tape recorded a bunch of his conversations with foreign leaders and others used for a book, and then he never even gave any of it to the government. Kept it himself uh, in a sock drawer and was never required to even turn it over, at least of all get prosecuted for it. Uh, then you had George W. Bush, who deleted something like 20,000-plus documents permanently when they left uh, and stored documents in an abandoned Chinese restaurant, uh, admittedly classified documents. Barack Obama stuck them in an abandoned furniture store, got into a big dispute with archives for about a year over this until he finally capitulated with some sort of agreement with them. Uh, and, of course, Hillary Clinton famously... Uh, had her emails that was intended to do business off the books so nobody could know how she was selling out the Secretary of State's office through the Clinton Foundation to enrich her political machine for various corrupt actors. And then, of course, Joe Biden's been doing it ever since he got to the Senate. His his modus operandi has been the way the best way to think of Joe Biden is he's a he's a poor man's Lyndon Baines Johnson, that he thinks everybody picks on him. He thinks everybody looks down on him. Uh, you know, he tells that story over and over again about how his mommy told him he was special when he was seven, when everybody was making fun of him. I mean, it's just a pitiful story, but it's, it's, and that's our president. Oh my God. So, but the, uh, uh, but that, but he's, what he's good at is corruption. He has mastered that art. When I was a lawyer, uh, uh, or when he was vice president and, and I was doing criminal defense practice, he made it clear to his allies in a pretty sophisticated way, by the way, that he was for sale and that he could get a criminal case dismissed, uh, that he was buddies with Laney Davis, and that for the right payment to the right people, and never went to him directly, uh, that he would make sure a criminal case disappears. I convinced my clients to stay as far away from that as humanly possible, because Biden's untrustworthy, even if you were interested in trying to do something crazy like that. Uh, but it's how he, how he operates. And then given that he had classified documents since his Senate days, and his vice president days, which like Hillary Clinton, he didn't have the authority to have in the first place. And he too has not been prosecuted, creates a selective prosecution issue of its own. And then you have Fourth Amendment issues because of how the search warrant was, the probable cause was in doubt, how the search warrant was executed, documents were seized that weren't supposed to be seized, information looked at that wasn't supposed, supposed to be. Then you have Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment issues because the entire case is built on them breaching his attorney-client privilege. And they only got that because they went to the wrong grand jury. They went through D.C., so they got to handpick their judge to handle that issue. That judge hates Trump, when in fact the case never even should have been in front of a D.C. grand jury. So you have a grand jury issue dispute as an independent separate grounds of dismissal, along with the big one of the attorney-client privilege and the misuse of trying to criminalize the exercise of executive power. The way I've explained to people is imagine if Congress wrote a law that says if the president does anything the Constitution lets him do, he goes to prison. Clearly, that law would be unconstitutional. That's They're just trying to do that indirectly. And so the, those are unique constitutional issues. And then we haven't even gotten to whether the Espionage Act, which has been used and abused to target dissenters and whistleblowers since its foundation, it's as abhorrent to the Constitution as the Alien and Sedition Acts that Thomas Jefferson rightly denounced and got rid of during his presidency. The Espionage Act, I've always opposed. It should be scrapped, should be just get rid of it. It's garbage. It's always been garbage. We don't need it. The Espionage Act is the deep state criminal enforcement law. That's what it is. That's how it's always been used. 
it's it's rarely used to go after actual people selling actual secrets and the rest. Uh, that that's the less common uh, use of it, sadly. So get rid of the espionage act. There's other ways to deal with that that kind of behavior. Uh, but that will be part of this case. Trump will challenge the constitutionality of the Espionage Act as applied to the elected president of the United States, especially. Not, not only that, then he has the, the Presidential Records Act, which appears to be its own law, which doesn't have criminal enforcement remedies, which arguably precludes all of these because it governs what happens when the president leaves and takes his documents with him. So the, so the argument will be the PRA eviscerates all these other ones. So you have one complicated legal issue after another, after another, after another, after another. That doesn't even get to the things that require evidence, discovery, and probably a hearing, which is government misconduct. Apparently, some of the prosecutors were trying to force some of the witnesses to testify uh, adverse to Trump, frankly, to make stuff up and lie about Trump. And they were bribing him with judicial promises. They were promising some of these lawyers, you flip your client, I'll make sure you get a judgeship under Biden. Uh, You know, extraordinary. And people forget, not surprised this is an espionage act kind of case. Who did that before? The Nixon administration did it with the judge presiding over the Daniel Ellsberg espionage act case where they were offering him maybe the FBI director, maybe this, maybe that, trying to bribe a federal judge to influence the Ellsberg case. So there's a history of that in these kind of cases. But uh, those cases, some of the government misconduct issues require discovery, There's probably going to be disputes over that discovery. Then they require evidentiary hearings. Then they require court adjudication of those evidentiary hearings. So you look at all of those things and all of these issues might be issues the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals wants to address. The Supreme Court of the United States may want to address. So there's interlocutory appeals. There's not a right to them until the case is over, but they can take them before the case is over. And this is the kind of case where they're going to be invited and tempted to take it because of the very unique constitutional issues implicated. So when a normal case takes 18 months to trial, it's hard to see this case getting to trial in less than three years. And that's why, and the state of New York is already talking about them putting their case on hold until the federal case is done. Georgia people that want to bring prosecution against Trump are talking about putting their case on hold until the federal case is done. So what it all ends up in, and Jack Smith was paranoid about this. He was saying, we need a trial. We need a trial. We, We want a speedy trial. With, with Judge Cannon, they're not going to get it. They might get a judge rig a trial in D.C. if they bring a case there. Uh, but then there'll be all, a lot of the same issues will be present in that case of some type, at least selective prosecution, et cetera. And they'll argue that they should, they should be transferred to Florida for economy and efficiency purposes. And if it gets the right judge in D.C., they may kick that case to Florida, too. Uh, aside from the fact, as you note, Alex, it's absurd to suggest that there's a legitimate criminal case related to January 6th against Donald Trump. <laughs> so you aggregate all of this and it's hard to see uh, a, the trial happening before election day. And what that means is election day is verdict day because in America, the qualifications clause of the constitution provides they no state can limit ballot access to someone based on anything other than the qualifications listed in the constitution for the presidency. That means the fact that he's indicted cannot be a grounds to keep him off of any ballot anywhere. So uh, Eugene V. Debs was on a bunch of ballots, even though he was in federal prison at the time uh, uh, during the 19 uh, teens. So you aggregate that election, election day becomes verdict day. And the problem for them is if that verdict comes back for Trump, 
then uh then then that's then their entire plot goes afoot because of course he can pardon himself once he gets into office in January. And the reality is almost no federal judge is gonna go forward with a trial against the elected president of the United States. Not, yeah. it's not the judge even if the deep state is willing to brand, you know, cross every Rubicon, not every judge is willing to cross every Rubicon with him much as the judge ultimately wouldn't on the espionage case involving Ellsberg for the Nixon administration. So that's where that the timeline is likely to go. Now I'll give you a surprise ending of where I think this may go and why Biden may keep adding on charges to Trump, even though he knows some of his people would know this same facts I'm laying out. And it's if you're uh, Biden and you want a backup plan, you want a safety net, uh, well, he's probably already created one by having Kamala Harris be his vice president. I used to think that was a dumb decision. Now I think it was a secretly genius decision because he put somebody in there with the uh, Spiro Agnew-like ability that the whole that the country is scared, terrified of more than him. And so the Democratic Party can't replace him without being stuck with her at the top of the ticket. And she's such a disaster electorally. They're not willing to do it. But she's so politically ambitious. She's not willing to go anywhere. All these people talking about Newsom and other people. How are they going to take out Kamala? Until they take out Kamala, they can't take out oh, Uncle Joe. But I think his other backup plan, whether he wins or loses, actually, is to use the Trump indictments to pardon himself, with the goal being he pardons Trump at the same time. He says, I just want to bring everybody together. You know, come on, man, let, let, let's do that. So I'm just going to pardon everybody and I'll pardon all the deep state people, pardon all the Clintons, pardon himself, pardon Trump, uh, and maybe throw in a few other pardons, maybe a Julian Assange pardon something else to go with it. So he looks, you know, like a great human being. And it's a nice cover for, because otherwise, if he just out of the blue, just pardons himself, he looks like a corrupt hack. Whereas if he's doing it, I'm just pardoning everything. So we don't have to get stuck with his politics anymore. Then it gives him at least some degree of cover. And I think that's where the story ends. I think it's not Trump pardoning him. I think it's Biden pardons Trump at the end so that he can pardon himself. That is extraordinarily interesting. Can I just say, um, um, if you go through all of these legal issues and constitutional issues that Robert was just reciting, which would be subject to appeal in this case, they all go to the absolute core of law i mean they they are they are fundamental issues of how law is of, of how law functions so i cannot imagine that courts judges particularly senior judges particularly senior appellate judges particularly supreme court judges would want to, to walk away from these because i mean this is the kind of thing that makes them famous <laughs> it's the kind of thing you go and read in a law book you know and you you read this is what they said it's it's, it's not just that. I mean, I, I don't want to just sound cynical. I mean, they they cannot just steamroller over this. I mean, I, I cannot see this. I mean, I have to say some of them, have, I, I noticed myself. I mean, the whole point about the grand jury indictment being in one place when the, when the, when the trial is going to be somewhere else. I mean, that is strange even to a British person. The the legal professional privilege points, I find very strange because, again, I mean the fact that judge that lawyers 
have been sort of strong-armed into giving evidence. The discovery issues are remarkable. <laughs> they, are, they are so strange. And if you don't if you if you don't allow discovery, you are you are creating an enormous problem because you are denying the defendant knowledge of part of the case that's being brought against him. And that seems to me again a fundamental issue. I mean, that is a core issue in in law. So I mean I, I can absolutely see how this could take three years at the minimum. And it seems to me that this has created the worst of all worlds for uh, Mr. Smith and the people around him, because Donald Trump has the advantage that he can legitimately say that he's been picked on, that he's been victimized, that they've come after him with this indictment, with all the political effects that we discussed, Robert set out earlier in the program, and which I said my aunt told me about, but he's not going to get a quick trial. He cannot get a quick trial. He cannot get a conviction before the case, before the election is, the election takes place. So it maximizes the political benefit for Trump in the period before the election. And I would have thought piling on uh, prosecutions and indictments, you know, January 6th, Georgia, whatever, doing all of these things, one on top of the other. And it's only going to aggravate the problem because it's going to make more and more of the people around the United States who are increasingly inclined to support Trump. They're going to start saying to themselves, so many cases against this man. <laughs> and it's going to diminish the um, the credibility of any single individual case by itself. It's like the subprime mortgages. If you remember, you sort of bundled together bad mortgages with good mortgages, and it was supposed to be that the good mortgages would somehow improve the position of the bad mortgages. It was the other way around. The bad mortgages tainted the good ones, and it will be exactly the same here. You bundle all these cases together, you're going to find that whatever legal merit, and probably isn't very much anyway, in any one of these cases may exist, is going to be damaged in the opinions of most people because they will look at these and they will say, most of this doesn't make any kind of sense to me. It doesn't relate to my life. It doesn't concern the way I live at all. And it just proves that none of this is real. This is just uh, Joe and... Um, Garland and Jack Smith and the deep state going after the one person who is talking about the things I really care about. So that's, I think, what it's going to do. But it'll be very interesting. And, you know, I do hope this, this is successful. It does look as if the possibility of getting a precedent out of this by the deep state might be more difficult for them than they perhaps bargained for. But it's still the case, I'm sorry to say, that the stakes continue to remain very high. And I hope that this prosecution fails. And I, in some ways, almost wish that we did get some kind of legal clarity about this from the Supreme Court of the United States, setting out clearly, once and for all, that this whole idea of this case 
prosecuting Donald Trump on these grounds, the fact that he held on to documents that were produced for him is unconstitutional and that it violates the fundamental principles in de of democracy for exactly the reasons Robert said, that it sets the officials above the president and, by extension, above the people of the United States itself. So just wanted to say all of that. By the way, Robert, I love your comparison between Joe Biden and LBJ. Joe Biden as the poor man's LBJ. Can I just say, people who don't know American history, LBJ, I remember him, by the way, she's just at the edge of my memory. I mean, he was a dark, corrupt, manipulative, ruthless, brutal politician. He was also, from my memory, an extraordinary political force. I mean, he was a force of nature. He was a man of tremendous energy and a tremendous intelligence i mean of course intelligence but a very real and strong intelligence and joe biden is a very very poor version of that but i can certainly see the comparisons yeah i mean i think it's like i've been trying to figure out like some people have been asking why is the ukrainian corruption issues with biden coming up now and i think there's a range of theories out there i've tried to figure out different aspects of this uh for a while because like the, the main purported whistleblower, the co-owner of Burisma, who was the uh, oligarchic, ex you know, he was like almost all of Central Europe and Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, but more in Russia and Ukraine than elsewhere. Basically, they had all these people who got government jobs and just, you know, stripped the state and light line their own pockets of them and their pals. That's how a lot of the original Russian oligarchs got established. And there are a bunch of you. And the, the difference is, at least, you know, mostly thanks to Putin that stopped around 2000, 2001 in Russia In Ukraine, it's really never stopped. I mean, it's just been one ongoing thing forever. And so what was fascinating is that the one executive official founder of Burisma that was inside the government helping get special licensing sweetheart deals to Burisma uh, was part of the government overthrown by the Maidan coup. His partner in the business in Burisma, Kolomoisky, uh, was part of staging the Maidan coup. Mm -hmm. It's like Ukraine gets complicated because everybody's hands on somehow both cookie jars. Mm -hmm. And the it's a unique place of corrupt corrupt history mm -hmm. in modern era. So uh, my understanding is, you know, and the other thing, weird thing that happened was, so Burisma, you know, be, you have the Maidan coup, mm -hmm. and then a few reformers slip in after mm -hmm. the Maidan coup to positions of prosecutorial power. One of them is the guy going after Burisma for just ripping off the state at writ large. That's when they hire Hunter Biden to get access to Uncle Joe. Biden brags about quashing it at an Aspen Institute conference. He claims he's talking about they have to prosecute corruption and won't give him money. That wasn't really what was happening. It's just the opposite, of course. Um, and in fact, the UK froze a bunch of Burisma accounts during this time period. Privat Bank gets frozen, which is connected to Kolomoisky and a bunch of other mm -hmm. folks in Ukraine. Then those accounts get unfrozen, not the bank, the private bank, but the UK funds get Burisma get un unfrozen. That former government official that fled during the investigation that hired Hunter Biden, that claims to have 17 tapes, uh, including with Hunter and Joe Biden himself recorded, uh, basically a quid pro quo 
I'll get you at least 10 million plus. You make sure these cases go away. The cases did ultimately go away. I'm sure Barisma paid. Well, we know he, they paid Hunter a lot of money. I'm mm-hmm. sure they paid Joe money, but it was done very creatively. Uh, now, of course, you know, they always have either a Maltese or Cypress, Cypress bank account. So, you know, the, you knew there would be some connection there because that was the favorite money laundering bank of Central Europeans for a long while. Did, didn't turn out so good for some Russians. And I, I can confirm the Cyprus account. Uh, Robert, really. by the way. Yeah. That's fascinating. Incredible. I knew some Russians that had some uh, Cyprus accounts that turned out not so good for them. But the uh, they thought the banking system was a little more stable than it probably was with that much laundered cash coming through so quickly. Uh, you know, when Switzerland was kind of being more difficult and uh, Singapore was uh, not as attractive to the Central Europeans. So they uh, but, you know, that's a whole other story. But the uh, uh, so it doesn't surprise me any of that. But what's weird is that, you know, the what is what happens after that? So 20 around here's what appears to be the timeline. 2019, Zelensky gets elected. He was uh, uh Kolomoisky was the it was his television network that boosted uh and put Zelensky on the map with his fake president show, all the rest. Uh, uh Kolomoisky was upset that Privat Bank had not been released back to him. I mean, what was it like half a billion dollars or some ridiculous sum of money that's in there that's in dispute about what happened? that had stayed frozen in the post-Madon coup government. Even though Kolomoisky had helped create that government by funding a lot of the hooligans that became Assoff Battalion gangs and militias in the Madon coup effort, which always surprises people because Kolomoisky is an Israeli, Israeli as well as Ukrainian. But you know, the, when you're in the George Soros world, you don't worry about those kind of, uh, about arming and funding anti-Semites, oddly enough, if you think it serves your agenda long-term. <clears throat> as uh, George had some experience from his young t- uh, teenage years uh, there in Hungary and elsewhere. So, but the uh, come 2019, so Zelensky gets in. Originally, uh, Zelensky, and I've been thinking about this in terms of the, the, the peace deal stuff that got leaked this past week, some by Putin, some by uh, Lukashenko and Belarus, and then some probably speculation in the West. But the aggregate, and then Russians with attitude had their own take on all of it. But it's trying to figure out uh, Zelensky and all of this and some of these other and these corruption issues is it appears that after Zelensky gets in, he's maybe sincere about some sort of peace effort. You know, he's talking to Trump and he's at least favorable in his initial conversation with Trump. The call that got Trump impeached about how he doesn't like certain high ranking uh, uh, Democratic aligned officials that he thinks interrupted, interfered with his campaign. Uh, he, of course, he had campaigned on a peace platform. Not long after that uh, is when they flip Zelensky by keeping his mouth shut while they impeach Trump for even asking questions about Ukrainian corruption. Then the next thing that starts happening, though kind of quietly in the States, is uh, the DOJ opens up a criminal case on Kolomoisky. And this starts showing up in various uh, seizure and forfeiture actions of his U.S. assets which always seemed kind of weird. And then all of a sudden, Burisma, which was dead, starts percolating back up within the Ukrainian investigative schema. And so that official who had come back, had left and then come back, all of a sudden flees to Monaco again. This is the guy who reportedly has the tapes with Biden. Though his daughters to this day are doing real estate deals in Ukraine. So it's like, it's, man, it's just, when everybody's corrupt, it's impossible to put everything together. So the... 
and Kolomoisky gets under so much heat, he flees to Israel, where they he won't be extradited. My takeaway is that the deep state wanted to educate Zelensky that he had no pillars of support within Ukraine, and that even some of the biggest oligarchs in Ukraine, they could take out at the drop of a hat. And that if he, unless he played ball with them and stuck with their script, he had no personal political future, even to the guy who had bankrolled his entire life to that point, that they could take him out like that, which they effectively did. I mean, he fled, Kolomoisky fled to Israel and hasn't been back to Ukraine since. And the fact that it all aligns with Trump asking questions after the Zelensky election uh, would further reaffirm that. And that kind of fills in some of the back. So then the question, so I think those people felt betrayed and that's why they went to the feds and gave him the information that he gave him that, that, you know, he's like, I got a deal. I bought uh, uh, Biden off. How in the world can you turn around and screw me anyway? Turn around and, 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 and I'm sure would feel exactly the same, still bitter about it. I mean, he did all that so he could get his pre-bought bank back and he never got it back. Uh, you know, hundreds of millions of, of bucks. Uh, and so, and that's the thing with a lot of these oligarchs is they just don't recognize rules in the way everybody <laughs> else does. The, uh, is that they were paying back, they were paying Biden back by getting this information of the FBI. And they may even be some of the source behind leaking it to the press, even, uh, that they're going around the FBI to get it out there and so forth, to get it to the, to Senator Grassley, to let people in the house know about it. So they ask questions about it. So they subpoena the whistleblower files. So they subpoena the uh, tape files. Uh, and then you have how Israel might be playing a role in all this, because now BB's back in. BB and Biden hate each other. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's become very intense. Uh, I mean, it wasn't. I mean, I think BB blames the U.S. and the Biden administration for the, uh, the degree of color revolution type activities happening over the judicial reform bill in Israel. He thinks some of that is organic and he thinks a lot of it isn't. Um, and of course, you know, Kolomoisky, to my understanding, is still right there in Israel with allies in the uh, BB government. So you have that whole thing. So you have all these different players and participants who might have their own ulterior agenda. And it's all flowing out from a combination of the consequences of Biden corruption that he institutionalized as a senator and vice president and the uh, the disastrous deep state policies that overreach, overstep so many times, sometimes turning on their own and then their own turn back on them. Mm -hmm. uh, and that might explain some of the backstory of what's happening to the degree I can figure it out because it's Ukraine where it's, it feels like uh, uh, Jack Nicholson's Chinatown at times trying to figure it out. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, can I just say Zlochevsky himself, he is the owner or, or presumed owner of Burisma, but Zlochevsky has connections with Israel uh, um, independently of Kolomoisky. Of course, one has to be careful about saying that because the extent to which Zlochevsky and Kolomoisky are connected to each other is, of course, a you know, in itself, another yes. whole mystery. But that makes it absolutely you have to go through the seven hundred and twenty-five shell companies to figure, <laughs> to figure exactly. it out. Well, exactly. But it is interesting that all this information is coming out. I mean, you know, about you know Zlochevsky's own contacts with, or alleged, shall we say, alleged contacts with Biden, or uh, you know, supposed contacts with Biden. All this information is coming out now, and it must be coming out 
from people close to Zlochevsky or conceivably Kolomoisky. And I think, Robert, I mean, that's probably far and away the most plausible and simple explanation is the one that you've given. Because you're absolutely right. These people, and, you know, I've, you know, follow them, track them. I've never had any specific dealings with Russian oligarchs myself. But, but what I can always see is that they never understand that there's a limit and, and things don't quite work always as they would like to work in their particular world. And that makes complete sense to me. I think it's exactly how you say. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if they feel that they've been very hard done by with uh, um, Biden and the fact that, you know, the Zelensky operation didn't work out quite as they had expected. And now that they're drip feeding information to the Republicans, perhaps through Israel, quite plausibly, to try to um, create problems for Biden going forwards. I mean, that makes complete sense to me. And if, I mean, I'm not saying it's definitely proved, but it's the most plausible theory I've heard. Makes I, 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 I would go with it. Alex, what do you think? Privat bank. Uh, I probably walk by it every day. Closed yeah. up. Closed up uh, a couple of years ago. But, um, yeah. you know... Yeah. All the times I would walk by Privat yeah. Bank, there was never any customers in there. I mean, obviously it was involved in other uh, businesses. Uh, Robert uh, Kolomoisky also had a, a Cyprus passport as well. And uh, we know from the Pandora Papers that uh, Zelensky yeah. has, I believe, four companies registered in Cyprus. Yeah. Him and his exactly. whole pr production team and his, and his wife, they're all registered here as well. And Biden made a trip to Cyprus in 2015. Mm -hmm. He said he was coming here to speak about the, the peace plan or, or proposed peace, peace plan with, uh, with Turkey. But yeah. I don't think anybody bought that. Yeah. No, it was, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, Biden is a pretty, like, at least when he was, what I witnessed uh, when he was VP, when he was basically selling access to getting rid of criminal cases in the U S because he was vice president mm -hmm. was that it was always it like he would, he actually did understand the, one of uh, my lessons in life, <clears throat> never in writing, always in cash. He would communicate verbally with people. So that it'd be like three or four degrees of separations removed from him. That would then approach the target and give him the pitch. And then the money would go back in the, in the opposite direction with three or four people removed. Uh, and it was, it was a reasonably sophisticated operation. That's the one thing I always said, Biden was pretty decent at being a criminal. I always called him a street criminal, like not your mastermind criminal, but like your local thug, you know, the guy who runs the local bar, who's doing a little bit of drug dealing on the side and a little bit of gun running on the side, a little bit of other criminal activity on the side. So not a super genius, but good at running that operation, that scale. Uh, he that's that's what Joe Biden is good at, and I think you can expect like I don't I put it this way: if Robert Kennedy continues to improve, because he appeared on Joe Rogan, uh, he continues to get anywhere from fifteen to twenty five percent support in early Democratic primary polls. Uh, if uh, Biden himself is talking about not appearing on the ballot in Iowa, New Hampshire, trying to uh, reject their delegates. That would be 
that would politically backfire on him because then Robert Kennedy could easily win those two states. And still the headline would be Robert Kennedy wins those states. And that would give him a sort of momentum that could be very uh, dangerous to Biden's renomination opportunity. But to the degree RFK does surge and if people can get a good sense of what his politics are in the extensive interview he did with Joe Rogan. Uh, he's, you know, Bobby Kennedy's been an, I, I mean, I've known him and a, and a, a friend, he's a friend of mine, but, uh, he's, he's been an anti-deep state guy for a while, though. A lot of that has really developed since the pandemic that, that it, it, it I would say really refined. In other words, he's always had it. You can go back and find him talking about opposing assassinating foreign leaders, wrote an article in 1975 when he was very young, wrote articles opposing, uh, the, uh, deposing of other governments. Uh, in 1975, then went on in 1979, wrote twice about the problems of the Pakistani coups, the sort of the original deep state uh, in its current manifestation was kind of the Pakistan deep state, where they're trying to do the same thing to Imran Khan that they're trying to do here to Trump in the U.S. Uh, in terms of removing him from power, used to the judiciary, and now, of course, uh, trying to uh, indict him, and that's triggering mass protests in Pakistan. But Bobby Kennedy was uh, talking about the problems of our policies towards Pakistan in 1979, uh, talking about opposition to every war. He's, uh, and he's announced it contemporaneous, both Iraq wars, the Afghanistan war, the Syrian war, Libyan war, wrote articles uh, protesting a bunch of them at the time at various points. So he's always been oppositional to war. Uh, he has uh, since, you know, it, it developed. I don't know when it you know began or when he first fully thought it. But for about a decade, he has believed that the deep state is the reason why his father was killed and the reason why his uncle, President John Kennedy, was killed. So uh, so that, you know, that further informs his perspective on the intelligence community and on the uh, national security establishment and the military industrial complex. Um, he's going to be giving a speech in New Hampshire that's based on the speeches Uncle President John Kennedy gave, the famous peace speech. Mm-hmm. That outline, you know, that went through. Look at what happened to the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. That we need to recognize that they suffered more than anybody in World War II. That they're the ones who really won World War II mm-hmm. in many respects. Uh, and you know, there's a it was extraordinary for how it's one mm-hmm. of Kennedy's less covered speeches, but one of his more consequential ones. And Robert Kennedy's going to give in the same vein. So he's bringing all of that old Democratic Party back. And as he surges expect Biden to try to do to him what they're trying to do to Trump. Expect some crazy lawfare to take place. Expect some weird things out of the blue. Expect some smear campaigns to occur on scale. Uh, and and then, of course, they're going to fix it on the back end with the superdelegates and the Democratic National Committee and other methods and mechanisms and means that they think they have to be able to shut down Robert Kennedy's campaign. The, the thing they have to watch out for is they thought the same thing in 1968 with his father. Uh, they, Robert Kennedy Sr., when he announced, they thought they had no chance. I think only two Democratic officials in the entire country endorsed him. I think only one union in the entire country endorsed him. Everybody was pretty much against him. What's ironic is how much Robert Kennedy Sr. versus LBJ is a lot like Robert Kennedy Jr. versus Joe Biden, that Biden shares a lot of things in common with LBJ. Uh, and, 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 and Kenny obviously shares a lot in common with his father. What's interesting is I think the only way Biden could lose is if you look at, uh, incumbents, only two incumbents have not been renominated that could have sought renomination. 
Everyone that did seek renomination, every incumbent won. But there were two that saw, that chose not to seek it because they thought they would lose. Truman in 1952 and Lyndon Baines Johnson in 1968. LBJ could not handle the idea psychologically of Robert Kennedy beating him up. I don't know if Joe Biden has the same psychological hangup with Bobby Jr., but he does think that everybody looks down on him in the same way LBJ did, has some of the same psychological uh, you know, hangups and has the same corrupt tendencies. Probably not as ruthless as LBJ because it's hard to be as ruthless as LBJ, but uh, of the same kind. But what was it that was different about Truman 52 and LBJ in 68 than uh, Poppy Bush in 1992 or Ford in 76 or Carter in 80 or any of these other examples? Well, it's that both LBJ and Truman made the mistake of having U.S. troops in an unpopular foreign war, whether it was Korea with Truman or Vietnam with LBJ. So the one way Joe Biden could get defeated in the Democratic nomination is if he takes the bait that's currently being pushed by some people in his administration to put U.S. boots officially on the ground in Ukraine. So that's the thing to watch for. If he makes that mistake, he should have taken the exit ramp on peace. But, you know, maybe they're reconsidering with this pause talk. But, uh, you know, the, the it was clear they couldn't win. It was going to be an ongoing disaster. It could go. It could become a quick collapsing disaster. You can't ever trust Zelensky if you're even in the West, because maybe he just flips side. He thinks it's going to crap, and he cuts a deal with the Chinese and the Russians, and 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 the Chinese promise him all kinds of investment and infrastructure and all the rest, like they're doing in large parts of Africa and the Caribbean and Latin America. That was Bobby Kennedy's point on uh, on Rogan. He said China's using the John Kennedy approach. Not go in and bomb, not go in and put a soldier, go in and put a teacher, put in a doctor, put in a hospital, put in a road, put in a bridge, put in those kind of things. And he goes, that's a smarter foreign policy to uh, earn allies by uh, by creating friendships, not by uh, creating fear. But so uh, it, it will be that would be the one way Biden could lose is if he takes the bait. And there are people seriously recommending it. McGregor's not wrong about this. He talked about this six months ago. But now they're escalating as they see that Ukraine cannot win on its own. Uh, uh, the only game changer NATO can really do is to put a bunch of U.S. troops on the ground. That would be the only thing that could change the inevitable Russian victory there. Exactly. What I think that would do is guarantee Biden's defeat in 2024. I completely agree. Can I just say... Uh, um, 1968, uh, you know, this was, was a little boy at that time, but it was where I actually discovered politics. And it was the US election of that year, because the year before we'd had a coup in Greece, a military coup in Greece, Lyndon Johnson's administration backed it. Um, my family and I, and I myself were in effect, uh, well, I, I was under house arrest in Greece at the time. I mean, I was a little boy, but I was under house arrest because my aunt and my father were opposed to the coup and um we were all following what was going on in, in the u.s because everybody not just just myself but the whole country was saying you know if robert kennedy wins this will end so the big event the the the, the thing that shaped me was the 1968 election and of course i've gone revisited it time and time again i remember 
you know, people, some people still remember JF, the, you know, the day when JFK died. I remember the day when Robert Kennedy died. I mean, I, it's still scalded on my memory. I remember it vividly. And my father, by the way, met Robert Kennedy just just shortly before at that time. Or just, just to say all of these things. So I have a personal memory of these things. A number of things to say about this. It is extraordinary how things seem to be repeating themselves. As you're absolutely right to say, a lot of similarities between Biden and LBJ. My opinion, LBJ would have taken Joe Biden for breakfast. I mean, he could have eaten him for breakfast. I mean, he was a much more powerful personality than Joe is today. Joe, Joe today is a washed-up version of uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson. I mean, and, you know, in, in 68, Johnson was still a tremendous force, and he took, uh, took enormous courage to go up against uh, Johnson. But, again, the thing, and this is indisputable, the thing that made LBJ throw in the towel in 68, make that announcement that he was not going to seek renomination, was the fact that it looked as if he was going to be beaten by Robert Kennedy. I mean, again, this is a historical fact. I know people will argue this, but it, it is an absolute historical fact. And a lot of things came together to bring it about. But of course, the war was absolutely central to it because Robert Kennedy was the first big name American politician to come out and speak against, speak out against the war. And of course, the fact that he did speak out the, against the war crystallized the opposition to the war against millions of millions of people. And it also made drew them into the campaign. And of course, what he did. LPJ, who, by the way, was a war skeptic. I mean, he was not a stupid man. He was somebody who had his doubts about Vietnam. Why did he go along with it? Why did he send all those hundreds of thousands of Americans to fight in Vietnam, uh, despite the fact that he might, he himself was, as it was a skeptic? He would argue the point in the National Security Council. He'd say, is this really wise? Well, the answer is because he was scared of the deep state, because they had information about him. I mean, he was a compromised figure himself. And again, isn't that likely to be true of Joe Biden, who I suspect is actually less of a skeptic about all of this than LBJ was. So I think that there is a push to get us into, um, into um, Ukraine. We've talked about this on the Duran. I mean, they're going to talk, first of all, about Polish troops, and Baltic troops. And we'd said we did a programme, Alex and I, which we said that's going to lead eventually, as night follows day, for American advisers and American boots on the ground, just, just like you saw with Vietnam. And today, today, I saw an article in the British media, and I've come to the view, by the way, that some sections of the British media are being used by the, if you like, the, the deep state people in Washington as the, as the original, sh as the sounding board. They, they knock out these things in Britain first 
then they get imported back to the United States. The Financial Times, by the way, is used like that all the time. The BBC is to some extent also. But I saw today that the way in which the only way this Ukrainian offensive can succeed is through direct NATO intervention in the war, that they need to provide air support to defeat the Russian Air Force. Now, everybody knows that when we talk about NATO, NATO collectively doesn't amount to a hill of beans. We are completely demilitarized here. The British Army would struggle to put together 25,000 men. I mean, that's less than what Ukraine lost in one battle, the Battle of Bakhmut. So, I mean, we and we are one in Britain, we still have what is probably one of the best armies in NATO. When people talk about NATO intervention, nobody should be in any doubt about this. What they mean is US military intervention, because that is where it will have to come from. Now, I don't know whether this is going to happen. I think there are probably many voices um, in the Democratic Party, and I'm not talking about nice people, I'm talking about terrible people, but people who still want to win elections, because that's what they do, and they have to win elections, because if they don't, and especially if, well, they don't want to win an election, they don't want to lose an election to Donald Trump, and uh, losing an election to Robert Kennedy Jr., I am sure is a far worse nightmare for them, by the way than losing an election to Donald Trump, because it might also threaten their hold over the Democratic Party. The very last thing they want is to see the Democratic Party revert to what it was in JFK's day and go back to being that. So those sort of people probably understand the risks. And I can imagine that, you know, within the inner circle, there is some kind of an argument going on. There's the Blinken, Newland axis. They say we've got to press on. We can't abandon Ukraine. This is our great project. This is what's going to make you a great president. You're going to bring down Putin. You can go to bring down the Russians. You're going to prove once and for all that the United States is number one. And you're going to be the president to do that. And besides... <laughs> You've got to do it because you're so invested now and so compromised that if Ukraine fails, you go down with it too. And then you're going to have the others, horrible people that some of them are, most of them are, all of them are. I suspect, I'm guessing, we, well, we're not guessing. I mean, Alex and I were talking about this. We thought that Jake Sullivan might be one of these people. They're saying to, they're saying, they're probably saying to Joe, don't go there. This isn't something that we can risk. There is a point beyond which you can't push this with the American people. They will turn against you. Robert Kennedy is already growing in the polls. Some people put him on 16%. In Britain, by the way, they're talking about 25%. He looks like he's going to win the initial primaries. Um, you're, already, you're already polling behind Trump. The economy doesn't look particularly strong. We cannot risk this. Let's not go there. The, the risks, electorally speaking, are too great. In which case, <clears throat> if this happens, if that side prevails, just think about this. It will be the mere fact that Robert Kennedy has had the courage to stand as a candidate 
for the Democratic Party nomination, that will in itself have been enough to change the entire political debate in the United States, even if, in the end, events uh, develop to prevent him gaining the nomination. Anyway, I've talked an awful lot, but I hope I hope I made some sense. Oh, oh, absolutely! I mean, the uh, you know fascinating story about the yeah. uh, the nineteen sixty eight in Greece. Yeah, yeah. The uh, I mean, it's it's Robert Kennedy has a lot of close friends. He has a deep volunteer base. He will have yeah. a solid grassroots financial base. He won't have much money from the from the super wealthy. His base of support will be uh, the work will be two groups: yeah. uh, Boomer Catholic women uh, who know him and remember the family legacy will be sort of a core foundation. But right now he's expanding into all those that are skeptical of Biden. So he's uh, his whole goal, as he said on, on Rogan, is to create a political movement in America that unites the populist left and populist right on matters of public policy that involve complete reform of the entire uh, governmental apparatus and remove the political hierarchy at the top of all of our government administrative agencies, including the national security establishment and the intelligence community. He once again quoted uh, his, what he said at the speech, his, his uncle, that it's time to do, to quote, uh, take the CIA and break them into pieces and disperse them to the wind. Uh, that gives you an idea of, of where his mindset is on those issues. He will be educating an entirely new audience. Some people may be taken aback by the fact that he'll make anti-Putin comments in that framework uh, or that he'll make complimentary ideas that Ukraine was ever a humanitarian effort. Uh, I, the, I would say for those, understand who he's talking to in his audience. So same with Trump. Trump will often couch a peace message in a militaristic macho framework. That's because part of his audience is very militaristic. Not all of it, but part of it is militaristic and macho. So he, so he needs to know, how do, I, how do I sell peace to that community? The same is true for Bobby Kennedy. His main audience is a Democratic primary electorate. He's trying to sell peace in Ukraine to a group, to that audience. He knows that audience was sold on Ukraine as a humanitarian effort to protect a vulnerable population from a big tyrant. He knows that audience will never like Vladimir Putin because of their misperception of him due to American and Western propaganda. So rather than fight them on those issues, he'll try to get them to the same peace location by saying, I can see these things. Yes, you wanted a humanitarian message, a mission. Yes, you don't like Vladimir Putin. Uh, I don't like Vladimir Putin either. However, destroying Ukrainian uh, uh, Ukrainian lives and the flower of their youth to do regime change in Russia for neocons is not a humanitarian mission, is not a practical goal. So he'll continue to do that. People will get caught up in the anti-Putin rhetoric. I recommend, just like they get caught up with Trump with the militaristic language, look at what he's ultimately selling. And that's what ultimately matters for the court of public opinion, is that there's more people voicing peace in both primaries than has happened before, right? In 68, there was no Republican peace candidate. So, I mean, the, the other right-wing candidate, I guess you could kind of call him a peace candidate uh, in the sense that he was like, either nuke him or get out. You know, George Corley Wallace, 1968, who famously put Curtis LeMay on the ticket. And at his initial press conference, he told Curtis LeMay, please don't talk about how you want to nuke people. Please don't. And of course, what does Curtis LeMay first talk about? 
nukes. We got to use them. That they're useful. People forget this was a high-ranking general wanted to use nuclear weapons. Uh, we have it's like people are wondering what insane person would put U.S. soldiers on the ground or trigger or put uh, you know whatever label you want to put on it, tactical or otherwise, nuclear weapons in Ukraine to risk World War III or nuclear conflict with Russia. It's the same kind of people who in the 1960s were portrayed by Dr. the movie by uh, Dr. Strangelove because they actually existed. They were people who wanted to use nuclear weapons in China and Korea who wanted to, you know, wage war, who wanted to go into the Soviet Union at the end of World War II, like Patton and others. Uh, McGregor wanted to keep, you know, wanted to, to, to use a bunch of stuff. <coughs> You've had a bunch of these people. And sadly, there's an element within the military, an element within the State Department that buys their own BS, that thinks exactly what you said, Alex. That's the pitch to uh, to, to Biden. Uh, the pitch is, here's how you can be a great hero. Everybody says you're not a great president. Everybody says all the, you know, you're an idiot that walks around with a diaper that falls down when he walks upstairs. That's not who you are, great Joe Biden. You are the president who brought down the last great tyranny of Russia. You are the president who freed the rest of Europe. You are the president who could use a combination of military and uh, might and brilliance to bring true democracy to the globe that could set the stage for a new century. <clears throat> and Biden's just dumb enough and just crazy enough to take the bait. That's the scariest phenomenon. I agree with you. There's people around. There's still some realists, despite the fact they try to purge him from positions of power. Because here's the, the problem for that those folks. When the Council of Foreign Relations flagship publication, Foreign Affairs, is allowing people to write in its paper, in its, in its little thing, uh, in its little week, monthly uh, publication that the called Foreign Affairs, that we probably started need to start looking at an exit plan in Ukraine. That means they have lost everybody outside of the lunatics. All Anybody that has any degree of realism about them, even a neocon or neoliberal that has any degree of realism about them, is recognizing uh, it's time to get out of this. This is not this is not working. Recognize what Kissinger recognized a year ago, which was uh, this isn't working. Time to get out. Um, the the only problem is they are being increasingly isolated from any position of power, much like Vietnam, where you had you know anybody who had a second uh, thought or a guess or, or challenge was increasingly isolated from the decision makers and the people convincing themselves they were winning and so-called and portrayed the documentary, the fog of war were escalated. Um, but yes, you're right. All, anybody with any degree of political pragmatism realizes the best way for Joe Biden to even lose the nomination in 2024 is to put is to put uh, American boots on the ground officially in Ukraine. So it's a very high stakes and very dangerous game and one very consequential because, again, we see um, that America has its uh, – is very much at a turning point. I mean, say what you will about Donald Trump. In 2016, he opened up the political system, I mean, in a way that has not happened in Europe, for example, so that we are still seeing the churn. All the pieces are flying and they still haven't fallen and we still don't quite know. And so it seems to me how it's all going to look um, going forward. But certainly this next period is going to be really very, very decisive. And I think just to say a few things about this, I personally 
I mean, if the person, if a person most closely corresponds with my own political beliefs in America today, it probably is Robert Kennedy. I mean, obviously, I have sentimental feelings about him because I remember his father, as I said, and the hopes that he inspired in people. And I still, as I was a little child, but I can still remember the effect of him. But I also have to say, I think he has a he has a very coherent idea of what to do, which I don't always get with Donald Trump. I fully recognize Trump's extraordinary political skills, which are of a unique character. And I also have to say that Trump, for me, has a huge amount of courage, which people don't recognize either. But he does make some very odd decisions at the same time. I don't quite know why he wanted to show papers to people, by the way, and brag about it if he really did do that, which perhaps he didn't, because that's another thing to quickly say about this indictment. The number of people who assume that everything that is written in that indictment is true alarms me. I remember I made that mistake with the George Papadopoulos indictment right back in Russiagate. And the thing about the George Papadopoulos indictment is that absolutely no part of it was true. So don't assume that what's written in the indictment is true. But some of these things that are alleged about Trump do seem to be in character. And I think they do explain perhaps why things didn't turn out quite as well as they might have done when he was president or didn't turn out as they could have done when he was president. Whereas I think Robert Kennedy is a more experienced person and perhaps a more disciplined one. That's my sense anyway. I, I, I don't want you to disclose anything about somebody who is a friend, uh, Robert, but I just thought I'd just express my views there. Oh, I think it's great that he's running. I think he'll be, he'll be a surprising yeah. candidate for yeah. a lot of people. The more people that get to meet him, see him and know him, uh, we'll see him surge. He's a very consistent populist on a wide range of yeah. topics and uh, would make a great president if he can break through the very it, the only areas where we disagree is that he is like his father, an idealist, an optimist about the Democratic Party. Uh, I am less so. I, I think that its institutional corruption will prove uh, a, a very uh, difficult obstacle. But, you know, I'm, but I'm glad he's not letting that block him from running i mean he should absolutely no. run and then we'll see what happens and he is probably right now the primary restraint on the biden administration putting troops on the ground in ukraine uh because biden does I mean, biden was senator in 1970 he he has personal recollection of lbj and the lbj kennedy race in 1968 so the probably the number one thing stopping us from escalating in ukraine at the moment is robert kennedy's presidential campaign uh, as much, I mean, Trump is a threat to the deep state writ large, but Kennedy is more of the practical restraint on Biden level escalation as we go forward. And it's a reflection of just, I mean, it's a, a in terms of unforeseen or unforeseen consequences of the deep state's actions. In the same sense, they misread Russia economically. Russia has survived and thrived ultimately compared at least to Europe uh, in the sanctions war. Uh, the that it's led to alliances between Russia and China, not further conflict uh, between Russia and China, the policies we've taken with Ukraine, that there was all this amazing, the Western press was like, nobody's going to Putin's St. Petersburg economic conference this week. And then you look it up and it's like pretty much every country in the world outside of Western Europe is there. 
It's like, I mean, they just make stuff up or they think their part, the only part of the world they think of as part of the world, uh, you know, Australia, Japan, Western Europe, et cetera, uh, is not there. United States and Canada, but you know, it, it's extended globally in a wide range of places where we're seeing some increasing talk of it here in the U S is that uh, is in a country that has long been a needle to the United States that is now developing critical alliances and deepening relations with Russia and China uh, because of its proximity and needed it because it was on the verge of economic collapse because uh, which is Cuba. So Cuba is another place that because of the, their COVID policies in a tourism dependent economy, they, they were sinking badly. Uh, I mean, almost starvation again, early nineties level starvation in Havana by people that I know that are there. The government, of course, a year or two ago had actual first major political protest and forever that, you know, since really the late seventies, early eighties publicly. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those that are on the anti-Cuban right, thought that they were about to see the Cuban government uh, topple in the next couple of years. And now because of their policies on Ukraine, the the same sort of, you know, the Rubio right, uh, they're going to fail in Cuba because now Cuba is deepening because Russia is like, well, screw it. You know, the America is a lost cause, so we might as well go back to aligning with a country that's, you know, where we already have a lot of our old Soviet uh, surveillance facilities already set up uh, where we can tweak the U S where we can help a poor country and a former ally. And so Russia and Cuba relations are deeply developing at a critical juncture for Cuba and China. uh, There was talk that China is using some of the old surveillance technique tools available in Cuba to spy on the U.S. And I think some of that was exaggerated, but putting that aside, it would not surprise me if if China wants to deepen relations with Cuba because Cuba desperately needs it. And they're, you know, they've always been a needle in the uh, certain parts of the American political spectrum that is this blamed as the same part of the, the sort of neocon right that wants to topple Cuba is blamed for hostilities with China, escalating militarily over Taiwan and over Ukraine. And so it's not a surprise that Cuba looks like it's going to get saved uh, by Russia and China, but really the neocon incompetence in Ukraine. And in fact, I mean, the, the, there's been a whole slew of meetings, which, of course, people haven't noticed. I mean, Putin just met the Cuban prime minister. Now, he's not the president of Cuba. He's I think he's he's, I think, either second or third in the hierarchy. I mean, as I understand it, Raul Castro is still there and he's the secretary general. So he's probably to all intents and purposes behind the scenes running things. He's the secretary general of the Cuban of the Cuban Communist Party. Then there's the president whose name I can never remember. <laughs> now there's the prime minister who I'm afraid I, 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 I've only just come across. But the point was he has just been in Moscow and Putin met him. So that's a huge protocol um, shift. I mean, Alex, who's um, you know comes to a diplomatic family, will tell you that generally, if you're the president and the leader of your country, you do not meet people who are not the leaders of your country. I mean, there are exceptions; they do happen, but this is an unusual meeting. And he was, you know, he was received in the Kremlin, and they were talking about economic 
ties and we see things happening. So last year, Russian-Cuban trade trebled and I gather most of that increase happened in the second half of 2022 when you know the real oil shortages began to kick in oil and food shortages began to kick in and so usual levels of trade between russia and cuba were between 200 and 300 million dollars trade turnover a year last year it increased to 800 and i think it was 30 million dollars this year it's going to, it's looking like it will be 7.5 billion dollars now just to give a sense of the scale of that cuba's gdp is around 100 billion dollars so 7.5 billion dollar infusion in one year in an economy that's to be frank not particularly strong very shaky is going to make a difference I mean, that's a significant increase, and it's primarily oil. The Russians are sending oil to Cuba because of the oil shortages that Cuba is going through. So they're sorting that out. They're acting to sort that out. They're also sending grain and other foods to Cuba because, of course, you were talking about the almost starvation conditions that were shaping up there. And you're absolutely right, Robert. The reason this is happening is, yes, the Russians have a sentimental, romantic feelings about Cuba, which they do. They also uh, want Cuba as a place, you know, to send tourists to. It's a very, very attractive, beautiful island. Havana is an amazing city. There's all the many things that Cuba can offer. But fundamentally, the Russians are very tough-minded, very unsentimental people. They're not going to do this for any other reason than a practical one. They want geopolitical allies. They've got the United States pushing them in Ukraine. They're pushing back, of course, in Ukraine. But the United States has now acted to bring Finland into NATO. It's pushing to bring Sweden into NATO as well. So the Russians say, look, if you're going to be doing that to us, we're going to reestablish our old historic connection with Cuba. And they're going about it exactly the way they did before. They look like they're going to try to revive the old oil for sugar trade. The Soviet Union supplied oil to Cuba. In return, Cuba supplied the Soviet Union with sugar, which it didn't really need, by the way. But anyway, that, that's what used to happen. And um, that started in the 60s. So they're going to revive the sugar economy. They're going to be interested in rum. Apparently, there's going to be special rum uh, uh, produced just for Russia. There's talk about an industrial park being created in Cuba to act as a launch pad for Russian companies that want to penetrate the Latin American market. All of those things. Lots of talk like that. But fundamentally... Russia is again providing Cuba with the backstop because it feels that it's been geopolitically pressured by the West and it's now pushing back and it's pushing back in the US backyard. And you're absolutely correct. Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, all of these people, they want to see cast, you know, the, 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 the system in Cuba collapse. What they're doing 
is ensuring that in fact the Russians will act to prevent it collapsing. And where the Russians go, the Chinese are certain to follow. And by the way, I just wanted to say, Blinken, as I'm sure you all know, is in Beijing at the moment. I've been reading the Chinese readouts of this, and they're very, very interesting. And uh, as far as I can tell, uh, the Chinese, and he's met three people. He met Xi Jinping today. He met Wang Yi yesterday and the new Chinese foreign minister, Gu Xiang. They're all saying exactly the same thing, that they basically gave him lectures over... U.S. policy towards China. But the readouts, the Chinese readouts, there is one conspicuous absence to all of them. They never mention Ukraine. <laughs> There's nothing about Ukraine in any of the Chinese readouts. If you go to the State Department readout, they say that Blinken actually brought up the subject of Ukraine. The, the Chinese have completely blanked that out. They, they, it's as if, if you, if you looked at the Chinese readouts, Ukraine, Russian relations between China and Russia, they're not discussed. And all three of these Chinese officials told Blinken, relations between us and you are very bad. It's your fault. <laughs> You've got to change your policies. You've got to rethink your policies towards us. Yet we're prepared. Yes, we're prepared to enter into working parties and explore ways of improving them. But for the moment, things are not good between us and you. So given that that's the position, why shouldn't the Chinese do what they love to do? Gain leverage over the United States by also inserting themselves into Cuba. And I'm sure we're going to be seeing more and more of that. And I don't think personally there was a huge Chinese intelligence base in Cuba. But now that idea has been planted. And don't surprised if that's what comes. Uh, no doubt. And I think uh, so. one of the earlier questions was about uh, the yeah. in terms of Trump vis-a-vis -vis China, yeah. the uh, uh, I think uh, you know Trump's position has always been op opposed to any form of military war with China. He criticized Pelosi going to Taiwan, said there was no reason to escalate. If you look at go back to Trump's presidency, everything with China was about economics. It was about changing trade policy. The secondary objective was to use China's relationship to North Korea to try to get a peace deal in North Korea. That got blown up in part by John Bolton, who was placed there because Trump thought John Hannity was acting on good faith when he said Bolton would help him get peace deals done, which is absurd. But, you know, that that's, you know, Trump's naivete was his biggest problem in that respect. But his policies was let's try to get a peace deal in North Korea, which is, is you know, sort of a, a form of China policy. And otherwise it was I want different trade relations with China. I mean, his position was always that China was smart in negotiating on its own behalf. He didn't think what they did was morally evil. He just thought they were uh, America was not ne negotiating in Americans' best interest, and that that meant better trade policy, which would restore U.S. industrial policy. He's increasingly on that path. I mean, he's talking about creating laws that make the U.S. completely independent of China economically. You have not seen him rhetorically join into any of the other anti-China talk, whether it's on Taiwan, whether it's on Hong Kong, whether it's on the Uyghurs, whether it's on any of those issues. You don't see Trump talk about that much at all. His talk is still, let's rebuild our industrial base, avoid war. 
I would say that the best argument against war likely occurring anytime soon is so much of the markets depend on China uh, are disappointed right now that China's reopening did not trigger a massive demand and supply uh, surges that would help with issues of inflation and economic sustenance in Europe and the U.S. China's got a lot of its own economic issues. It hasn't rebounded from all of its lockdowns. I don't think any country really could. I thought that was just a mistake from the get-go to lock down that long. It was a mass experiment economically that we had no idea what the ramifications would be over time. But I don't think there's a risk of of the U.S. escalating militarily directly. With There'll be a lot of rhetoric, but I don't think uh, – I think the bigger risk will still stay Ukraine for the next year because they need China economically uh, because otherwise the U.S. looks like it's heading towards a very, very bad recession. Uh, not a slight recession, but like a deflationary great financial crisis or even depression 1930s era, deep recession, because you've got so much leveraged debt in the system that can make any economic downturn far more devastating and impactful. Our credit card debt is off the charts uh, uh, and our credit card interest rates are off the charts. Our The uh, mortgage industry is unsustainable. The housing market is unsustainable. The uh, um, unemployment is being undercounted because of various statistical games. The Biden administration is terrible at this. They've been the worst of, of any. So like basically every six months, they revise the numbers and say, oh, yeah, when we said we gained 4%, ah, we actually lost 1%. I mean, it's crazy. There's always been some adjustments, but not of that scale and not all in the same direction every single month. Uh, there's, you know, if you look at gross domestic income, if you look at what they call GDP plus, which is gross domestic production plus gross domestic output and income, uh, we're already in a recession. You ask the ordinary American, they say we're in a recession. And that's before it really hits the fan. Uh, the Fed has continued to jack up rates. They finally pause. They promise higher rate hikes, which make no sense. They probably won't. Uh, but we have banking problems. We have the whole, uh, if you follow Jeff Snyder, the euro dollar problem, which is basically the people that create credit and capital infusions don't want to create credit right now because they're worried about their counterparty risk that they won't get repaid. Uh, the credit crunch is already coming to the United States as banks start squeezing lending standards. And what happens is the small mom and shop business, the new entrepreneur, can't get any capital. It's not just that the interest rates are bad. The banks just won't lend to that kind of business. They'll, you know, they'll lend to certain select businesses. You know, the J.P. Morgan pals will get rewarded. I mean, they just paid two hundred ninety million to the victims of Jeffrey Epstein. You can make a reasonable inference why they wrote that check uh, in terms of what that was about. So uh, I think we are heading for a deep, deep, deep recession, late twenty twenty three, definitely the heart of twenty twenty four, which means Biden is going to be in severe political trouble. Because he's already the most unpopular president, or one of the most in American history, and that's before it hits the fan, uh, fully and formally on the economy. So uh, I think you're looking now that can be dangerous too, because if you have a 2024 president that's facing a, a economic deep, deep downturn, a tough primary opponent, a serious general election opponent, then they're going to be even more tempted to have some foreign war be a distraction from all of those problems. That's the risk in all of this. But I would say right now, Joe Biden is heading towards the political deathbed. They can't replace him. 
because mm-hmm. there's nobody else out there that well Harris won't step at step down number one and Harris is much more unpopular than Biden so he's he's effectively Agnew level impeachment insurance resignation insurance even if the deep state wants to extort him policy wise by leaking potential criminal indictments of him his family of him his son his sister and his brother all of whom are involved in all kinds of every kind of corruption on demand. So, uh, you know, that's, and to the super chat, I, I would love to see Cornell West run. I think he's a very smart guy. I've met him a couple of times. Brilliant guy. He's not going to be a serious contender. He's, he's not in, doesn't have the Kennedy name, doesn't have independent, doesn't have the Trump wealth or background. Uh, but I'd love to see him run because he adds important, useful thoughts to the public dialogue. And that's an important part of presidential elections. But I think the economy, uh, I mean, it looks like it's going to get bad in Europe. I think it's going to get really bad here. And I think that uh, that will have its own geopolitical ramifications. And come 2025, one of the stronger economies in the world might be Russia, of all places. I just say, I would just start a few few of your points you've made, uh, uh, Robert, about Donald Trump and China. You're absolutely correct. For him, it's an economic issue. It's about America reindustrializing. It's about protecting the American base. For me, this is the start, the alpha and omega of what Trump was always all about. I mean, ultimately, this is what really concerns him. I mean, he's not interested in what goes on in all of these places. You mentioned the Uyghurs and all that. He's a he's main concern. And ultimately, the source of his appeal is because he cares about the American heartland. Now, the Chinese weren't happy with all of the things that Trump was doing, because why would they? I mean, from their point of view, the American market was the gift that went on giving. But they're very tough-minded, very practical people. They understood what Donald Trump was all about. And the thing I always say to people is that Xi Jinping and Donald Trump actually understood each other and liked each other. They got on. Trump could be very tough on China, but at the end of the day, Xi Jinping actually liked him. Compare that with the utterly poisonous relationship that's developed between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden, in which we have Chinese readouts, in which Xi Jinping basically says to Biden, I don't trust you because you tell me one thing. And then the opposite happens. That was never the issue between Donald Trump and Xi Jinping. And that makes all the difference in the world. If you know anything about international politics, you should know that where trust exists and people are straight with each other and understand each other and respect each other, much can be achieved. Where there is no trust, nothing can be achieved. It is as simple as that. And I also agree with you completely, uh, Robert, that if we're in a recession, we're already in a recession here in Britain. I mean, we've had uh, declining living standards, uh, a, a very bad situation in um, public finances. Britain is in a malaise. Germany, mighty Germany, is in an even worse state. And the Germans are finally figuring this out. And they're starting to say to themselves, they're beginning to start to say to themselves, what did we do to ourselves? And they don't really know how to get out of it. And it will have to be. There, there could be big political ruptures there. But the big one always is the United States. 
it's still the king. It remains the most important country. It may not, you know, in manufacturing terms, be the biggest leading country in the world, but in so many others, it is still the where the pivot is. And if the United States goes into recession, which I think pretty much everybody now agrees is where it's heading, then, of course, we're going to see major political change in the United States. That's going to strengthen the opposition to Biden and the administration. I hardly say Biden himself. But, I mean, you start to see things begin to happen very fast. And with a president who is clearly to me, unfit to stand. I mean, I, I mean, I, I dare anybody to argue otherwise. I mean, what was the God Save the Queen thing all about? I mean, it's most odd. I mean, it's very strange. And it, was, it wasn't even, in some ways, the strangest part of that speech. It was, the whole thing was very peculiar, actually. The way he was behaving at the end of it was very weird. But I, I cannot imagine the American people will want an extension of that. If they're in recession, they've got a crisis in Ukraine, a war that is going wrong, talk of U.S. intervention there, and with all of these other problems uh, building up. And the Chinese, absolutely right, they've got many problems of their own. They also, if, if, if there is a desire to find, to do a deal, that the scope to do it is there because the Chinese also need a pause. They need time and space to sort out their own problems, which are very, very considerable. And as for the Russians, just to say finally on before I finish, um, we've had a whole slew of economic news, growth rates faster even than Putin himself anticipated. 2% growth they're looking at this year. A few months ago, it was going to be another contraction. Then the IMF said it would be 0.7% growth. It now looks it's going to be 2% growth. Talk of 3% growth next year, even if there's a recession in the West or globally. Uh, the head of Sparbank has said that domestic demand and production to meet that demand is enough to keep the economy expanding. They've got fifth, their, their GDP, debt to GDP ratio is just 15% as against the US, which is over 100, and all of Europe pretty much is over 100 as well. Germany will be there too, by the way, before very long. So they're looking well positioned. So it's extraordinary how the people who came to power in the United States in 2021. We won't discuss how they came to power. The people how, who came to power in 2021, they promised us all sorts of things, a turbocharged growth in the United States, U United States standing tall, reconciliation between Americans. The opposite has happened in every one of these cases. I, I mean, we're not going to detail again the disastrous kind of administration this has been. And the adversary that they decided to take on, Russia, is booming, even as the economy in the United States, which they've been presided over, presiding over, is faltering. Well, Robert, I'm going to stop. This is my last comment. Um, I'm going to pass on to Alex.
um, and just say thank you again for all these amazing things that you've been saying. But this is Thank just basically to summarize uh, and, and cap all, all, the, all your various points. Another another epic live stream. Yeah. Whenever we have Robert on, well, it is an epic live stream. Let's wrap this one up. Uh, Robert, I'm just going to ask you one question. Do yeah. you see any way that uh, Biden would uh, step down? Before I think the problem they have is that with both Trump and Robert Kennedy potentially on deck, especially that they have there. There's only one question for them: who replaces Biden, other than Kamala Harris, that can beat Kennedy and Trump. And for example, uh, Robert Kennedy would do much better against Kamala Harris than Biden. Uh, doesn't have the same sort of power of incumbency that Biden has. So same against any other candidate. So Robert Kennedy is a restraint. His campaign is a restraint on their ability to replace him. Kamala Harris is the biggest restraint because people are acting like she would go away. Extremely ambitious. Zero chance she goes away. Like increasingly, that's why I think I never understood why Biden picked her. Very un-Biden choice to pick someone disloyal. That you know she had attacked him in the primaries ruthlessly, so on and so forth. But it's become more clear why. He recognized, oh, here's someone who's dumber and uh, as corrupt as me. And so the, they'll never be able to replace me because she's my Agnew insurance, like Agnew was for Nixon. It was only after they took out Agnew they could take out Nixon. Um, and you know, then he put a Rockefeller or what you know, that or Ford, and then, then Ford put around a Rockefeller. So they you know, that tells you where that was all about. Ford sitting on the Warren Commission. So I think that's their hurdle. Their, their hurdle is they can't replace them because they can't get rid of Harris. Now, if they somehow got rid of Harris, then whoever that VP alternative would be would mean Biden is on the clock. But uh, I think that I just don't think they can remove Harris. I think they've decided that they can't, which means they can't remove Biden. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's why Biden is he bought himself insurance. And I think he's buying himself pardon insurance with these indictments of Trump. I think that's what's behind the scenes going on there. And the way Biden would communicate something like that, it would never be in writing anywhere. He would talk to somebody who would talk to Jack Smith off the record, say, hey, we really need this to happen. It's good for the country. The president would really, really appreciate it. Something like that. But he, he wouldn't be tracked being, you know, saying it himself. So the one thing he's still competent at is corruption. And it appears that that will keep him in, in uh, the White House until the election. But I don't think they can beat Trump uh, in 2024. And I don't think the indict I think the indictments will be footnotes in history in the end. Uh, and maybe uh, the, the one last successful corrupt ploy of Joe Biden as he heads out the door. <laughs> well, all right, everybody, the great the one and only Robert Barnes. And where can everybody find you? Mr. At uh, VivaBarnesLaw.com locals.com it is in the description box down below and i will have it as a link comment as well thank you to everyone who watched us during this live stream thank you very much to all our moderators and we will answer all of the questions in the dedicated q a take care everybody thank you robert thank you alexander mm.